Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN encrypts 100% of your internet data to keep you safe from hackers and eavesdroppers on your network. Just go to expressvpn.com gold and you'll get an extra three months free on a one-year subscription package. The podcast is also sponsored by True Niagen. True Niagen helps fuel the cell's energy engines, maintains cellular metabolism, and even supports a healthy heart in combination with a healthy lifestyle. And now you can save 20% on your first purchase at TrueNiagen.com slash Peter using the promotional code Peter. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. A lot has happened in the two days since I recorded my last podcast on Wednesday. All sorts of news came out on Thursday and Friday. Lots of action in various markets. So I'm going to get started with what happened on Friday and work my way backwards to Thursday. First of all, Friday, the markets really got clobbered. The Dow Jones finished the day down just over 500 points. In fact, we had a huge two-day drop on Thursday and Friday, more than wiping out the gains on the week that had been enjoyed earlier. In fact, over the last two days, the Dow Jones is down 2.9%. It's over 1,000 points. It was a 1.43% drop on Friday, but the damage was even worse in the S&P 500. It was down 1.9% yesterday, 
and 3.7% over the prior two trading days. Even worse, as you work your way up the risk curve, the NASDAQ dropped 3.15% on Friday alone, extending its two-day decline to 5.4%. Actually, the Kathy Wood ARK Innovation ETF managed to outperform the NASDAQ on Friday. That's a rare occasion. It only dropped by 2.5%. But over the two days, it narrowly edged out the NASDAQ in losses. It dropped 5.5% over those two days to put all this in context as far as where we are now so far in 2022 for the major averages you have the dow down 4.4 percent year to date you have the s p 500 down 7.3 percent year to date you have the russell 2000 down 9.5 percent on the year and the nasdaq down 12.8 percent solidly in correction territory you know that russell 2000 just on the border of correction territory though it had a pretty good bounce in fact the russell 2000 is the only index that is still up for the month of february all of the other indexes are not only down on the year they are down on the month again look at the kathy wood arc innovation etf that etf is down 24 percent so far this year but in sharp contrast as i've been saying not just this year but at the end of last year look at the relative performance of value versus growth people are buying stocks that pay dividends now instead of buying companies that may have earnings in the future instead of betting on the come investors are betting on sure things not sure things in that there's no risk but sure things in that the earnings are already here the dividends are already here so you're not buying based on what you hope might happen in the future you're buying based on what is already happening now and you have the fact that it's been happening in the past to create some type of assurance that what happened in the past will continue in the future there's no guarantee but it's a lot better than hoping that something that's never earned any money and never paid any dividends in the past may eventually start doing it at some distant point in the future look at what's going on with the euro pacific funds and again if you're going to buy any of my mutual funds make sure and get a prospectus read it and understand all of the risks and make sure they are suitable for you but in contrast to the carnage on friday the euro pacific dividend payers fund rose by 1.3 percent on the day and in fact on the year that fund is up six and a half percent but what's more amazing than the fact that the fund is up six and a half percent is that it happened at the same time that U.S. markets are getting crushed, particularly the NASDAQ. If you look at the difference between the Euro-Pacific Dividend Payer Fund and the NASDAQ composite, just this year, the first six weeks of 2022, the difference is almost 20%. 19.3% is how much more investors earned by buying dividend-paying foreign stocks versus buying momentum domestic stocks. And you know, the return on the dividend payers fund would have actually been better had I not had an allocation to mining stocks because gold mining stocks are basically flat on the year. So they're not really adding to the returns. They're subtracting from my returns. I would have an even better return year to date if I had no exposure 
to gold mining stocks. And if instead I just increase my allocation to the non-gold stocks that are in the portfolio. Now, the reason I have the gold stocks in there is it's because it is my expectation that they will ultimately be among the best performers in the fund and add to the returns. But so far, that has not been the case. In fact, my value fund has a higher allocation to gold stocks than my dividend payers fund. That's why it's only up 5.3% year to date, but it was up a little bit more yesterday than the dividend payers fund, again, because of that exposure to the gold mining sector. And I'll get into what's been going on with gold in a bit. But I want to reiterate another example of this shift in investment strategy, the rotation out of growth into value. One of the best examples in my portfolio is British Tobacco, BTI. And again, when I talk about individual stocks on the podcast, it's not to make a recommendation that anybody run out and buy the stock. I'm just trying to illustrate a point and using this particular stock as an example, it is one of the stocks that we own in our portfolios. The stock was up 4% on Friday. As the market was collapsing, this stock was hitting a new 52-week high up 4% in one day. That brings the total gain on British tobacco year-to-date to 23.5%. We're only six weeks into the year, and the rally didn't start this year. It started in December. The stock is now up 37% from its December low. That was about two months ago. Now, if you look at the PE, it's still slightly below 11. That means you're buying the stock for less than 11 times its earnings, and the dividend yield is 6.5%. And of course, that's after this big rise, meaning that before we had this 37% rise off the December lows, the PE was lower than it is now. The dividend yield was higher. And in fact, if you compare the current price of British tobacco to where it was 11 years ago, it's still slightly below where the shares were trading back then. How many things can you buy today at a cheaper price than you could buy it 11 years ago? There's not many. In fact, one of the only ones is gold. The price of gold is also slightly lower than it was in 2011. Again, I'm going to get to gold in a minute, but I want to keep focused on British tobacco because there is no news. No relevant news has come out on this stock that is responsible for this big rise. So why is it going up? Again, because investors are looking for a place to park the money that they are taking out of momentum stocks and non-dividend paying stocks. And as I've said, they can't go to cash. In the past, people were willing to take refuge in cash. But right now, you can't stay in cash because cash is a very dangerous place to be given how much inflation there is. So you can't just stay in cash, you're losing in cash. Cash is not being on the sidelines. You're still getting beaten up in the game if you're in cash. I mean, maybe cash is not losing as much as momentum stocks, 
but it's still losing. And if you want to avoid losses, you have to avoid holding cash. Well, what are you going to hold instead of cash? These value stocks, these dividend-paying stocks. And if you can buy them at a lower price than what investors were paying to buy the same stocks a decade ago, this is where the money is flowing. And as more and more money flows into these stocks, it attracts additional money to follow those returns. I mean, people are now looking at this stock and seeing the momentum that it now has. So not only is it a value stock based on its low PE and high dividend yield, but it's now a momentum stock too because it's going up. It's got momentum. The stocks that used to have momentum are going down. They now have momentum in the wrong direction. So the flows are going to continue to move into stocks like British Tobacco. And we're still very early in this rotation. It's got a long way to go. And another reason that investors are buying stocks like British Tobacco is because smokers are going to keep smoking even if the price of cigarettes goes up. Because if you're addicted to cigarettes, you got to smoke. And if smoking becomes more expensive, you're not going to quit. You're just going to cut back on other spending so that you can keep spending on cigarettes. And so in an inflationary time period, if you own a stock where the company has pricing power and they can raise their prices along with their costs, their margins are protected, and the dividend can be increased, and that protects the shareholder from inflation because as his cost of living is going up, because prices are going up, his dividend on British tobacco is also going up, so he's earning more money in dividends to help him pay higher prices for goods and services. Does it make sense that the same company that controls half of the online retail also passively eavesdrops on every private conversation? What about the idea that a single company controls 90% of the internet searches, runs your email service, and gets to track everything you do on your smartphone? Big tech is more powerful than most countries, and they profit by exploiting your personal data. Now's the time to put a layer of protection between your online activity and those tech juggernauts. And that's just one of the reasons I use ExpressVPN. So go to expressvpn.com gold to learn more. Just think about how much of your life is on the internet. Sadly, every site you visit, video you watch, or message you send gets tracked and data mined. But when you run ExpressVPN on your device, the software hides your IP address so big tech can't personally identify you. ExpressVPN makes your activity harder to trace and harder to sell to advertisers. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your internet data to keep you safe from hackers and eavesdroppers on your network. And ExpressVPN does all this without slowing your connection. That's why it's rated the number one VPN service by Mashable and Tech Radar. But what I like most about ExpressVPN is how easy it is to use. Just download the app on your phone or computer, tap one button, and you're protected. Another benefit, in addition to privacy, and which from my perspective, I'm more concerned about the government getting my data than big tech is the fact that I get access to content that might otherwise be blocked based on the fact that I live in Puerto Rico. For example, I have Dish and Dish doesn't have CBS. When I want to watch CBS Sports, I need to use Paramount Plus, but Paramount Plus doesn't work in Puerto Rico except I've got the ExpressVPN downloaded onto my Amazon Fire Stick, and that enables me to access the content, which would otherwise be unavailable. So stop handing over your personal data to the big tech monopolies that mine your activity and sell your information. Keep your information protected and private using the VPN that I trust to keep my information safe. 
Just visit expressvpn.com slash gold. That's expressvpn, E-X-P-R-E-S-S, vpn.com slash gold to get three extra months free. Now, I want to get into the catalyst, the what caused the big stock market decline on Friday. And it was a very different catalyst than the one that caused the big decline on Thursday, which I will get to next. But the Friday carnage was directly related to rumors that were circulating and then later confirmed by a White House press conference that government officials around the world believe that Putin has made the decision to invade the Ukraine and that the invasion could start any day. In fact, a lot of people expect the invasion to happen over this weekend, maybe tomorrow when we're all watching the Super Bowl. Now, so far, Putin has denied the rumors. He says that this is not true, that Russia does not intend to invade the Ukraine over the weekend. Now, of course, even if they did intend to invade, they wouldn't say so. I mean, why would you admit it? And then you basically undercut the effectiveness of your invasion. I mean, you want to try to take whoever you're invading by surprise. So it makes a lot of sense that even if Putin does intend to invade, that he's denying those rumors. Now, President Biden and Putin are supposed to have some type of emergency phone call at some point today. Maybe they've already had the phone call. I don't know, but they are scheduled to talk. And so maybe there'll be some new news on the prospect of this invasion by the time anybody listens to this podcast. But the important aspect of it was it had an immediate effect on the markets. I mean, the markets were weak, but not nearly this week. And as soon as the news came out, we had the big drop in the stock market. But we had the opposite reaction in other markets, in particular, the gold market. Gold had a great day. It was up 1.9%, 1.9%, just under 2%, closing at 1859. That is a $32.40 jump on Friday. Gold is now at a three-month high. Silver also had a strong day, up 40 cents. It closed the day and the week at $23.57. Gold stocks also had a big day. They were up about 6% as a group, although some individual names were up more than that. Although this huge rally basically offset most of the year-to-date losses in gold stocks. In fact, gold stocks got clobbered on Thursday. They did more than recover those losses on Friday, but not a lot of movement on the year, despite the fact that gold is now up 1.7% on the year Year over year, the price of gold up 1.8%. Now, this is in sharp contrast to what's going on with Bitcoin. In fact, nothing really highlights the difference between gold and Bitcoin than the reaction to yesterday's news because gold and Bitcoin reacted opposite of each other based on the exact same news. So you get some news, geopolitical risk, And as a result of that, the price of gold jumps up, but also the price of Bitcoin gets killed. In fact, if you look at the difference between GLD, which is the gold ETF, and GBTC, which is the Bitcoin ETF, while GLD was up 1.9% on the day, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust was down 4.5% 
on the day. The opposite reaction to the identical news. In fact, year to date, that trust is down 13.5%. And on a year over year basis, it's down 40%. Now, if Bitcoin promoters claim that Bitcoin is digital gold, right? Some digital equivalent of gold. So instead of buying actual gold, you can buy this digital gold and you virtually get the same thing. If that were the case, then Bitcoin should be correlated to gold. It should act the same way. I mean, maybe it moves up more when gold moves up. Maybe it moves down more when gold moves down. But if it's a digital version of gold, then it needs to act like gold, not the opposite of gold. I mean, Bitcoin is more of an anti-gold. It's more likely to do the opposite of what gold does. So it's not digital gold. It's digital gold in reverse. What it really is, is digital risk which means anybody who is buying Bitcoin because they think it's an alternative to gold, they think it's a safe haven or a store of value, is mistaken because it is neither of those things and what happened on Friday proves it. And also earlier in the day, gold was already up prior to the news breaking of the Ukraine invasion. Gold was already up. And the reason gold was up is because it was reacting to a much weaker than expected February University of Michigan confidence index. The January number was 67.2. And the consensus for February, and this is a preliminary number, so we'll get a final number later, but the consensus was for a slight improvement in consumer sentiment to 67.5. Instead, consumer sentiment collapsed all the way down to 61.7 way below the lowest estimate in the consensus, which ranged from a low of 65 to a high of 69, 61.7. That is the lowest reading in more than 11 years. And why are consumers so gloomy? Well, because the price of everything that they want to consume is going up. In fact, in particular, car prices, used car prices are now up like 40% year over year. It's an incredible increase in the price of cars. And that is why consumers aren't buying cars because they can't afford them. In fact, within this survey, they report on consumers' intentions to buy a car. And that measurement is at an all-time record low. So fewer Americans are planning to buy a new car or a new used car than at any point in history. Now, what does that tell you about the economy. Clearly, it's in a lot of trouble because autos are a big part of the economy. And that's one of the reasons that these auto companies are getting killed. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. GM was down 3% on Friday. It's now down about 27% from its 52-week high, clearly in a bear market. Ford also dropped just under 3% yesterday. It's now down almost 33% from its 52-week high. It's deeper into bear market territory than General Motors. But what does this tell you? This is a big part of the economy 
A lot of jobs are in the auto sector, higher paying jobs. And what does this mean? The economy is moving into recession. What is driving the recession? Inflation. Consumers are having to cut back on their spending because everything that they're buying costs a lot more money. And I will get to that in a little bit when I get to the inflation data that came out on Thursday because I want to stick for now to what happened on Friday. But the point was gold was already up on this news, which is bullish for gold because it shows that the economy is weakening and a weakening economy is a dilemma for the Fed, which is now trying to fight inflation by raising interest rates. Because if the economy slips into recession, then the Fed may decide that it can't fight inflation because it has bigger fish to fry because it's more worried about the economy. So any news that shows the economy is weakening is going to be bullish for gold because it means that the Fed will be less aggressive in fighting inflation because its hands are tied behind its back based on weakening economy. And this consumer sentiment number certainly reveals a lot of potential weakness. Remember, up until recently, the Atlanta Fed was estimating Q1 GDP at just 0.1%. Now, they since moved that up to 0.7, but it's still very close to zero. And in fact, potentially the next time they revise this estimates based on some of this new data it may well revise that estimate into a negative number and if we have a negative q1 right a contraction in gdp then we're halfway to recession and that puts a lot of the rate hikes or potential rate hikes in jeopardy and of course that is bullish for gold and which is why the price of gold was already up before the invasion news broke. Other markets that were reacting to the news, the US dollar index had a big rise. It was up about a half a percent. It ended the week just above 96, about half a percent gain on the week as well. So pretty much all of the weekly gains happening on Friday. The index closed about 95 and a half the prior week but also a big move up in the oil market. Oil prices shot up $2.86 on the day. We closed the week at 91.42. That was down about 90 cents. Oil was much higher at one point during the day. It got as high as 92.74. We didn't take out the high from last week, which was 93.17, but I think we're gonna take that high out next week, regardless of whether or not there's an invasion. But certainly if Russia does invade the Ukraine, then I expect a much bigger increase in the price of oil than if no evasion actually happens. But even though oil was slightly down on the week, It is up on the month. We're up 3.7% so far in the month of February. And year to date, oil prices are up 22%. Does that sound like inflation is slowing down? Like it's cooling off? Like we're going to get some type of rollover? No. All of the inflationary pressures are building. And in fact, those pressures are going to build even more if we get this invasion, which really highlights why the move in the bond market makes no sense because we got a flight to safety in bonds. Bonds were down prior to this news. In fact, the yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury was at 2.063%. This is the highest it's been since the pandemic. We're now solidly with a two-handle. But after the news came out, we had a reversal. Investors bought U.S. Treasuries and the yields 
settled back down below 2%. We closed at one spot 955%, but that still represents a increase in yields on the week because we closed the prior week at 1.93. Same thing in the 30-year bond. Earlier on Friday, the yields hit 2.353%. Again, a new post-COVID high, but we backed off and closed at two spot 257%, but still higher yields on the week. We closed the previous week at two spot 233. But my point is, why are people buying bonds as a safe haven when you also have inflation? Because there is no safety in bonds when it comes to inflation. And if an invasion results in higher oil prices, that puts even more upward pressure on inflation. If a potential war in the Ukraine causes the Fed to back away from some of its so-called inflation fighting because it's worried about the collateral damage to the economy and to the markets of this geopolitical turmoil going on, then that too is more inflationary. And inflation hurts bonds. So if you're in an inflationary environment, Bonds can't be a safe haven. And I think this bond rally is going to be very short-lived. The real safe haven is gold. Because not only is gold a safe haven from geopolitical risk, but it's also a safe haven from inflation. So gold provides protection from both threats. Now, Bitcoin provides protection from neither threat. Bitcoin doesn't help you with geopolitical risk and it doesn't help you with inflation as is being proven by the recent market action. But it's not just the longer term treasury bonds where the yields are rising. You're seeing even bigger increases on the shorter end of the curve. And that's because obviously investors are pricing in a return to recession at some point during the term of these 10 year treasuries. And so they expect rates to move back down as the economy slips into recession, that's not going to be the case because we're going to be in stagflation and yields are going to be rising even as the economy is falling, which is going to create added problems for the economy. But think about this. The yield on a one-year treasury right now is 1.01%, barely above 1%. That is what you earn when you buy a one-year treasury. Now, That yield makes no sense because the year-over-year inflation rate in 2021 was 7%. So how do you lock your money up for a year to get 1% when inflation is 7%? Nobody's going to do that. It makes no sense whatsoever to buy a one-year treasury bill when the yield is only 1% and inflation is seven times as high. These are the yields that make no sense whatsoever. I mean, they make even less sense than the yield on a 10-year treasury at 2% because at least people can believe that over the course of 10 years, rates are going to come back down because they're starting to think about the next recession and why rates might fall. Now, of course, that's a wrong assumption. I think anybody buying a 10-year treasury is making a huge mistake if they think that later on the yields are going to come back down. They're not. Inflation is going to drive them up. But what is the theory behind buying a one-year treasury at 1%? There is no way the inflation rate over the next 12 months is going to be 1%. I mean, even if the Fed succeeds 
incredibly in reducing the rate of inflation. Let's say they manage to get the inflation rate back down to 2%. I think there's zero chance of them doing that, but let's say they do. If inflation is going to be 2%, why buy a note that only yields 1%? And in fact, if inflation gets down to 2% by the end of the year, it's not going to average 2% for the entire year. If the Fed manages to get inflation back down to only going up by 2% a year by December, maybe inflation over the entire year will be 4%. Again, why buy a one-year treasury obligation that's only going to pay you 1% if you're going to lose 4% to inflation? The yields make no sense whatsoever, and nobody in their right mind is going to buy this paper, which is why the yields are going to keep going up. The only buyer potentially is the Fed and the Fed is threatening to stop buying. In fact, not only is the Fed threatening to stop buying, it's threatening to start selling. Good luck with that. From head to toe, your body is made up of trillions of cells, which are all busy performing their specific functions to keep you healthy and resilient. To keep up with all that work, a sufficient supply of an essential molecule called NAD plus must be maintained for cells to perform their normal functions, which includes creating ATP for cellular energy, repairing your cells, and supporting healthy mitochondria. Many common lifestyle factors that can decrease your cell NAD plus supply include alcohol consumption, excessive sun exposure, a poor diet, and even environmental factors such as pollution. True Niagen is a supplement that helps the cell's energy and can safely and effectively elevate your NAD plus levels, giving each one of your hardworking cells exactly what it needs to perform at its best. True Niagen addresses the non-visible signs of aging, like cellular energy production, and helps support heart and muscle health. And right now, you can save 20% off your first purchase at trueniagen.com Peter when you use the promo code Peter. That's trueniagen, T-R-U-N-I-A-G-E-N.com slash Peter. Use the promo code Peter to save 20% off on your first purchase. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And in fact, on Thursday, the Fed's inflation problem got a whole lot bigger because we got the release of the CPI number for January, the first number for the new year 2022. And as I speculated on my last podcast, the number came out worse than expected, meaning a larger number, more inflation. The consensus was for an increase of 0.5, which is still a big number, and we got an even bigger number. Prices were up by 0.6%, but the even bigger beat was on the year-over-year number. We ended 2021 with a year-over-year inflation rate of 7%. The consensus was for that to go up to 7.3 as of January. Instead, it went up to 7.5. That was even above the high end of the consensus range, which went from a low of 7.1 to a high of 7.4. 7.5%. We have already increased the year-over-year rate of inflation by a half a percentage point over where it was in December. The same news on the core. If you exclude 
food and energy. They were looking for core CPI to be up 0.5, again, up 0.6. And the year-over-year increase went from 5.5% at the end of December to 6% at the end of January, a full half a percentage point increase. These are the worst inflation numbers since 1982. I think it was February of 1982, which was the last time we had a year-over-year increase of 7.5%. And by the way, in February of 1982, the Fed funds rate was 11.5%. Right now, it's basically zero. It was at 11.5%, and we have the same rate of inflation now as we had then. And of course, another significant difference between the inflation we had in 1982 and the inflation we have now is in 1982, even though we had high inflation of 7.5%, we were coming down because inflation was 13.5% in 1980. So we had already peaked and inflation was going down in large part because we had high real interest rates. If we had a Fed funds rate of 11.5 and an inflation rate of 7.5, you had four percentage points there of real yield. In contrast, Today's 7.5% CPI represents an uptrend. We're not coming down, we're going up. We're going in the opposite direction and interest rates are still basically zero. So real interest rates are minus 7.5%. So what's going to happen to a 7.5% inflation rate when you have negative real yields? It's going to keep going up. So the numbers are going to keep getting worse. We were improving in 1982. Inflation was on its way down. In fact, we had begun a multi-decade long decrease in the inflation rate. People called it disinflation because we had a constant ratcheting down of the inflation rate. That's why we started a big bull market in stocks and bonds in 1982. Well, now the opposite is in play. We are now seeing a major increase in inflation. This new period of inflation is just getting started, and that means the bear market in bonds is just getting started. That massive bull market that began in the early 1980s is over, and we are now in the early stages of an even bigger bear market because inflation is going to get so much worse. And it already is worse. Again, I've talked about the fact that we are not using the same CPI that we used in 1982. Because if we did, the year-over-year inflation rate would likely be north of 15%, meaning the highest inflation we've ever had. At the same time, we have the lowest interest rates we've ever had in real terms. And so clearly, the Fed continues to pour gasoline on this fire. But there's another reason that the true rate of inflation is much higher. And that's because companies come up with all sorts of gimmicks with which to raise prices without officially raising their prices. And I don't think any of these unofficial price hikes make it into the CPI. For example, Peloton, which makes these stationary exercise bikes, they recently added a $250 delivery and setup fee. Now, prior to that, the delivery and setup was included in the price. So you didn't pay extra for it. But now, instead of raising the price of the bikes, they probably raised those too, but now they add a whole new fee that didn't exist before. And so they can pretend they didn't raise their price, but this delivery fee is not going to be included 
in the CPI. And all sorts of companies are doing that. If you look at your bill, if you go to a restaurant, you might see an added fuel supplement or a service fee. Companies add processing fees, postage and handling fees. They add all sorts of fees rather than increasing the price. And these fees are not included in the CPI, but of course they're included in what consumers have to pay for the goods and services they are buying. You know, airlines have been doing this for years. I've talked about it on the podcast where instead of raising the price of a ticket, they just force you to pay extra to check your bags. They force you to pay extra to pick your seat. They force you to pay extra to get a meal, to get a pillow, and the fees to change your flight go up cancel your flight go up so when the government is looking at airfares and they're just looking at the fare and they're saying here's the change they're ignoring all the other ways that passengers are paying higher prices to fly on planes and so what's actually happening to the cost of goods and services is far greater than what the government claims and again the most striking example of the absurdity is the owner's equivalent rent. Because again, if you look at the owner's equivalent rent in the January CPI, it's 4.5% year over year. That is ridiculous. Rents are up at least triple that amount and home prices quadruple that amount. That's a third of the CPI. It's the biggest component and it's so wrong. It is dragging down the index. So if we just substituted real rent or home prices for owner's equivalent rent, we would be well over 10% year over year right now. And why are we using a rent that nobody pays and not using the rent that everybody pays? Because the government is deliberately cooking the books. They don't want to report the truth. They report a lie. The problem is now the lie is so bad because in the past, when they lied about inflation, they were able to pretend it was less than 2% when it was more than 2%, but now it's so much more than 2% that even though they lie about it, it's still bad. Now, initially, when that news came out, the markets kind of shrugged it off. I mean, I would have thought there would have been a bigger negative reaction in the markets to that hotter than expected CPI number, But I still think a lot of market players are under the false impression that we've somehow turned the corner, that maybe that's the high watermark and inflation is now going to be coming down. And there's no reason to actually believe that that's going to be the case. But I think people are still a bit delusional on Wall Street when it comes to investments. Well, they got a real reality check later in the day. It was about two o'clock New York time when Bullard, He is the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. He came out in an interview and said he wants to see a 100 basis point increase in interest rates by June, I think, or July, and that he wants a 50 basis point rate hike on liftoff. And in fact, he even talked about the possibility of an intra-meeting rate hike, meaning not waiting until March for liftoff, but to raise rates right now. And since the Fed has already said they're not going to raise rates until they completely stop doing quantitative easing, if we're going to raise rates before the March meeting, then the Fed has to stop QE before the March meeting. In fact, there were rumors that began circulating on Thursday that the Fed was going to have an emergency rate hike as early as Friday morning. 
And that really spooked the markets. And that's what started the big decline on Thursday. In fact, gold was down on the news. Not much, but gold stocks got clobbered. And again, why does the market keep selling off gold on the inflation data? And there was an initial sell-off in gold when we got the hotter than expected CPI. Gold did tank over $10 immediately, but it managed to claw its way back following that initial decline. But the reason that traders keep selling gold in response to hotter than expected inflation data is because they think the Fed's inflation fight is going to be bad for gold, that gold is going to be collateral damage because these higher interest rates are going to be bad for gold. And I have to keep pointing out that higher interest rates are not bad for gold. The reason interest rates are going up is because of inflation. And that's good for gold. And even though interest rates are going up, inflation is going up faster. For example, the increase in the year-over-year CPI just in January was 7% to seven and a half. That's a 50 basis point increase in inflation that wipes out an entire 50 basis point rate hike. Meaning that if real interest rates were negative 7% when they were at zero, but now if the Fed goes to a half a percent, but inflation goes from seven to seven and a half, real interest rates are still negative 7%. So even though the Fed has raised nominal interest rates, they haven't raised real interest rates. And in fact, the inflation rate is going to accelerate faster on a higher trajectory than the rate hikes. So even as the Fed is raising nominal rates, real rates will be falling. And that is extremely bullish for gold. In fact, any negative interest rate is bullish for gold. It doesn't matter how negative it is. If you've got a negative interest rate, it's bullish for gold and interest rates are going to stay negative. There's no way they're ever going to get positive. And when investors figure that out, they're going to stop selling off gold on bad inflation news and they're going to start buying it. And maybe they're already ready to start doing that based on the action that we saw on on Friday, but that emergency 50 basis point rate hike didn't happen on Friday. But the odds of a 50 basis point rate hike by March have now increased. I think it's about a 70% probability now that when the Fed does get around to raising interest rates in March, it raises them by 50 basis points and not 25. But again, it's far too little too late because the increase in the inflation rate has already completely negated the entire 50 basis point rate hike. But I never really thought that we were going to get that emergency hike because I think that would be very problematic for the Fed and the markets because it would be an admission that the Fed got something wrong because if it has to veer from its planned trajectory if the Fed has to have an emergency hike and cancel the hike that it had anticipated for March that basically amounts to the Fed admitting that inflation is worse than it thought and it is now reacting to being wrong and having to change its policy and raise rates sooner than it had planned and by more than it had planned. And I think that is a can of worms that the Fed prefers to leave closed. And so I think they're going to kind of wait and increase rates 
when they had planned. But I think there is a pretty good chance now that that initial hike is going to be 50 basis points because since the market's now expected, if the Fed fails to deliver, that could be considered an ease, which would be extremely problematic for the Fed. And it would also send a signal that the Fed is worried about the economy because it's not giving the markets as much of a rate hike as the markets expect. But of course, the bigger problem for the Fed and for the nation is the predicament that we are in, pretending that what the Fed is planning on doing is going to have any effect on inflation. Because even if the Federal Reserve just raised interest rates to 2% today, it would still be an accommodative monetary policy. It's still a stimulative policy. Inflation is 7.5%. A 2% interest rate in a 7.5% inflationary environment is a highly stimulative policy. It is not going to do anything to fight inflation. Because what you need to do to fight inflation is you have to change people's preferences. You have to change their propensity to spend and borrow and increase their propensity to save and under-consume. And how are you going to do that with negative interest rates? Nobody is going to be incentivized to save money when inflation is destroying the value of their savings. Nobody is going to be incentivized to hold off on buying stuff when the price of everything they want to buy is going way up. The way you might refrain from buying something today is if I can put my money in the bank and earn a good positive rate of interest, then maybe I'll save up my money, earn some interest, and then buy some products in the future when they'll be cheaper because I can use the interest that I earned to help defray the cost of buying the product. But if I'm going to earn no interest, if inflation is destroying the value of my savings, why am I going to wait to spend? I'm going to buy whatever I can as quick as I can. The velocity of money really picks up in an inflationary environment. Everybody wants to get rid of their money like a hot potato. Nobody wants to be caught holding the cash. They want to get rid of their cash. And it's not just the consumer that wants to get rid of the cash. It's the businesses. That's why you're seeing this big increase in inventory. Businesses don't want to hold on to depreciating cash. They would rather turn their cash into inventory that they can sell in the future at higher prices. But also, think about the incentive to borrow. When you have inflation, you create an incentive to take on debt because inflation wipes out the value of that debt. So inflation encourages debt. And when you borrow money and spend it, right, that's driving prices higher. So what the Federal Reserve is supposed to do to fight inflation is to discourage borrowing and spending and encourage saving. So if the interest rate rises to the point where you have a good positive return, like Volcker did in 1980, let's say the Federal Reserve raised interest rates to 10%, right? Inflation is 7.5%. If the Fed raised interest rates to 10%, that would be a game changer because now if you want to borrow money, there's a cost. If inflation is 7.5%, but it's costing you 10% interest to borrow money, well, you're paying 2.5% real interest in order to borrow money. Right now, if interest rates 
are one or two percent and inflation is seven and a half percent you're not paying anything to borrow money in fact you're being paid to borrow money the fed is incentivizing you to go out and borrow money because they're making borrowing money so cheap in fact they're punishing you if you don't borrow money if you save money you're going to get killed but if the fed raised interest rates to 10 percent savers would be rewarded savers would be thinking okay yes inflation is seven and a half but I'm getting 10% interest on my savings that is offsetting the price increases. So I'm going to save money. That's what would be needed in order to bend the inflation curve. We've got to disincentivize borrowing and spending and incentivize savings. But none of that is happening. We are continuing to pursue an expansionary monetary policy. In fact, it's not just that we're pursuing an expansionary monetary policy. We are pursuing an expansionary fiscal policy. And all of these policies are all Keynesian policies. I'm not a Keynesian. I'm an Austrian. But all of the economists in government at the Fed, they all subscribe to the Keynesian school. That's why they always want to stimulate the economy with deficit spending or easy money. Well, if you go back to Keynes, right, classic Keynes textbooks, you've got expansionary policies and you've got contractionary policies. And both policies are used under opposite circumstances. So when does the Fed pursue an expansionary policy? Well, when the economy is weak, when the economy is in recession, and when you have low inflation. Because according to the Keynesians, inflation and the economy kind of move in opposite directions. When you have a strong economy, you have high inflation. When you have a weak economy, you have low inflation. Now, that's not true, but that's what the Keynesians believe. And so when the economy is weak, according to Keynesian economics, the government can help by stimulating with expansionary policies. Well, what are those policies? Well, you have monetary and fiscal policy. So an expansionary monetary policy is where the Fed is creating a lot of money, where the Fed is lowering interest rates in order to incentivize borrowing, investment, consumption, which of course we've been doing. Another type of expansionary policy is fiscal policy. Well, how does the government stimulate the economy with fiscal policy, it runs deficits. It spends more than it collects in taxes. So supposedly it's putting money into the economy and it can accomplish that in two ways. It can lower taxes. So taxpayers get to keep more of what they earn and now they can spend that or the government can increase government spending, send out more unemployment benefits, more welfare benefits, stimulus checks, and now people get to spend the extra money that they receive from government. And all that extra spending is gonna stimulate the economy. And the reason the government can do all this is because there's no inflation, because you have a weak economy, and so you can pursue these type of expansionary policies without an adverse effect on inflation because it's already low in this weak economy. Now, the theory is when the economy is no longer in recession and no longer needs this stimulus, the government takes it away, right? Like the stimulus, the government accommodative policy is a temporary measure. It's like a crutch that you give the economy when it's having trouble walking and then it uses these crutches until it can walk on its own and then you take the crutches away and everything is fine. Now, the other type of policy is a contractionary policy 
when does the Fed use contractionary policies? Well, that's when the economy is strong, but it's too strong, right? It's overheating because now inflation is too high. And so what is the Keynesian policy remedy for high inflation? It's a contractionary policy because the Keynesians are focused on demand and you want to use Keynesian policy to restrict aggregate demand, to lower demand, to rein in inflation. So what would be an example of a contractionary fiscal policy? Well, the government would start running surpluses instead of deficits. You would have tax increases, right? You would take money away from taxpayers by raising their taxes, and now they have less money to spend, so you've reduced aggregate demand, or you cut government spending. You give people on welfare less money, and now they have less to spend. So either government cuts spending or raising taxes, and that's what you do in an inflationary environment when you want to cool down the economy. This is all Keynesian economics. It's basically Keynes 101. Everybody knows that. Well, what is the government doing right now? Do we have contractionary monetary policy? No. Do we have contractionary fiscal policy? No. We have a massively expansionary fiscal policy. The U.S. government is running $3 trillion budget deficits right now. These are the highest deficits in history. This is a massive expansionary fiscal policy. At the same time, the Fed is running an expansionary monetary policy. Rates are still at zero. They're still doing QE. But even if the Fed stops doing QE, even if the Fed starts raising rates, the rate hikes that they have planned still leave the rate below the rate of inflation. It is still an expansionary monetary policy. And the Fed has admitted that. I talked about that on my last podcast. Fed officials are admitting they're not going to tight money. They're just making money less loose. They are just going to be less accommodative in the future than they were in the past. But you can't fight inflation with an accommodative monetary policy, especially if you also have an accommodative fiscal policy. The ridiculous thing is the government right now is using a combination of monetary and fiscal policy that they would use if the economy was in recession and inflation was low. But they're using that policy under the pretext of fighting inflation. But they're not using any of the policy prescriptions to actually fight inflation. They're using the policy prescriptions that will make inflation worse. They are basically stimulating an economy that is already overheated And that's not going to fight inflation. That's going to make inflation worse. This is the problem that nobody wants to acknowledge. Because again, when the government stimulated the economy with accommodative policy, monetary and fiscal, they didn't give the economy a temporary crutch that it would use until it could walk on its own. Basically, that policy crippled the economy for life and made the economy completely dependent on those crutches. The crutches are stimulative or accommodative monetary policy and accommodative fiscal policy. The economy and the markets need both of those crutches to walk. You take one away, they can't walk. You take them both away and the economy falls flat on its back. That's why the Fed can't remove its policy accommodation. That's why the government can't remove its, which is why inflation is never going to go away. Inflation is going to keep getting worse. This is a massive economic catastrophe in the making because the Fed can't allow this to happen, but they don't seem to have a choice. 
And that's why stagflation presents such a huge policy dilemma for the government. Because the tools that the government relies on to deal with recession and the tools that it relies on to deal with inflation are opposites. You fight off recession with an expansionary combination of monetary and fiscal policy, but you fight off inflation with a contractionary combination of monetary and fiscal policy. But you can't expand and contract at the same time because those policy responses cancel each other out. See, the problem is under Keynesianism, stagflation can't exist. It's impossible because Keynesians think inflation is caused by growth. And so they never really provided for a circumstance where you had recession and inflation simultaneously since they assumed that condition would never exist. Well, they never created a policy to deal with it, but unfortunately it does exist and that's why we're stuck. So members of Congress, instead of just complaining about inflation, they should actually be doing something. Everybody in Congress is just looking at the Fed and blaming the Fed. And of course the Fed shares a lot of the blame. The Fed is printing all this money and keeping interest rates artificially low, but it's Congress that's spending all this money. Congress is running these huge deficits, pursuing this expansionary fiscal policy, even as everybody is claiming that the economy is strong, that we have a booming economy, they continue to pursue this expansionary policy they should be doing their part to fight inflation with a contractionary fiscal policy. What they need to be doing is cutting government spending. If the problem is too much spending, too much demand, how does the government do that? It needs to reduce spending, send less money to Americans so they'll have less money to spend. Or they can raise taxes. We have huge deficits. We need tax increases, not on the rich, but on the middle class. We have to tax the people that have a high propensity to spend because it's the spending that's driving prices higher, not investment. So we need middle class tax hikes to reduce aggregate demand. But nobody in Congress is talking about raising taxes on the middle class. Meanwhile, they're complaining about inflation and they want to leave it all to the Fed, even though they're continuing to pursue an expansionary fiscal policy, which is only appropriate according to Keynes. And again, I don't agree with any of Keynes's theories, but at least according to Keynes, you only do that when the economy is weak and there is no inflation. Keynes himself would look at the current situation and say, you need a contractionary fiscal policy. We need tax hikes. We need cuts in government spending. But again, we can't do it because this bubble economy depends on all that spending as it depends on a accommodative monetary policy from the Fed. That's why the Fed can't remove that support without the economy collapsing. Yet everybody in Congress is simply looking at the Fed to fight inflation, yet the Fed is pretending it's going to fight inflation with an accommodative monetary policy. Even if monetary policy becomes less accommodative, it's still accommodative and it needs to be contractionary. Congress can't abdicate its responsibility and simply hand everything to the Fed and expect these tiny rate hikes spread over a couple of years are going to do anything about inflation when all they're doing is continuing to throw gasoline on the fire. Even if they're throwing less gasoline, it's still going to make the fire bigger.
They think the way out is, well, we're just going to raise interest rates very slowly. We'll pretend we're fighting inflation, even though we're not. And we'll just hope the inflation problem goes away on its own. That's not going to happen. You know, they had the same philosophy in the 2000s when they were normalizing interest rates from 1% where the Fed lowered them in 2002, back up to six and a half, I think, or six and a quarter, where they ultimately got in 2008. The Fed moved interest rates back up gradually. The Fed increased interest rates by 25 basis points every meeting. Now, why didn't they move rates higher quicker because they were obviously too low and you also obviously had a housing bubble at least it was obvious to me it should have been obvious to the fed but rates were too low they needed to let air out of that bubble and they needed to raise rates quicker but the federal reserve did not want to do that because the fed was afraid of the damage to the markets and the economy with an abrupt increase in interest rates even though an abrupt increase is exactly what was needed. In fact, the problem was rates never should have been slashed to 1% in the first place. But once they made that mistake, they compounded the mistake by raising them too slowly. So the Fed left interest rates too low for too long and that added air to the housing bubble. And so we ended up with a much bigger bubble. And so when that larger bubble ultimately popped, we had the financial crisis of 2008. Had the Fed acted sooner and not been concerned about the short-term negative effects on the markets, we wouldn't have had the financial crisis. Well, the same thing's going to happen now, only worse. The Fed should be raising interest rates much more aggressively, but it's afraid to do that because of the damage to the markets. So instead, it's raising them slowly. And just like the housing bubble got bigger, the inflation problem is going to get worse. Inflation is going to keep going up because the Fed's approach is too little too late to rein it in. But by the time the Fed actually gets around to trying to stop inflation from becoming hyperinflation, that's when everything is going to collapse. That's when we have a financial crisis on an order of magnitude greater than the one we had in 2008. That's when we have to come to terms with the fact that we can't pay our bills. That's when the government has to start defaulting on all of its promises, including its commitments to bondholders to pay interest in principle on U.S. Treasuries. That is where this is headed. We are headed for a sovereign debt crisis. We are headed for a currency crisis. And investors are still completely asleep to this nightmare of a reality. (music) 